verses 32 through 39. What does it mean to be persecuted for your faith? Often we think of people in different places of the world that outlaw Christianity or people who behead Christians. And quite often I hear people say that Christians aren't really persecuted in the United States. What they mean is that we're not suffering physically for our faith. And in contrast to so many people in in the world that uh, do experience that. Still, it isn't right to say that Christians in America do not suffer. We are slandered for being Christians. We're maligned for not indulging in the same lifestyles and behaviors as unbelievers. We sometimes have experienced persecution from governing authorities. We're rejected for not following the societal ethics of our day. Many are astonished that we have such a restrictive sexual ethic and even the way of salvation. They they can't believe sometimes in the exclusivity that we have in saying that Jesus is the only way. Many people think that we are detrimental to society. We should be eradicated. Romans, in the day of uh, the apostles, sometimes thought the same way about Christians. And our world opposes us because we don't approve of sin that is celebrated by our world. uh, The apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 said that those who practice such things sometimes give hearty approval to those who practice them. Out of our biblical convictions, we cannot support things like the Supreme Court decision to legalize gay marriage. As Christians, we we weep over the juridical approval of sins that dishonor God. We, We weep and mourn over the sin that is accepted in our society, things like abortion. And this response that we have leads to tensions with our families and friends, doesn't it? People really can't understand us. And this response that we have will lead to tensions in the workplace with employers and coworkers. They think we're out of touch with society and, and we've lost reality. Those people who are teaching in public schools that may face unique pressures to conform to uh, these different viewpoints in the coming years. Already things like evolution, but the the sexual LGBTQ and plus will be uh, an ever-growing pressure. As a result, unkind words are said at the very least behind our backs and sometimes to our faces. It may lead to discrimination regarding our jobs and loss of liberties and freedom of religion and society. Of course, all of these more subtle types of verbal abuse and discrimination may lead to the next step of physical abuse and suffering and the confiscation of our property. None of us knows what the future holds for the believers in the United States. But Peter, the Apostle Peter, exhorts us in his first letter to be ready for fiery trials, to follow the pattern of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in suffering, and to live by faith that knows with certainty that eternal glory comes after this moment of suffering. He says in 1 Peter 5, 10, 
After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What I want to help you with today, from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, is that you would be able to persevere no matter what persecution you may face, whatever form it may come upon you in the future. The book of Hebrews is an interesting book. It appears to have been written to the church in Jerusalem about 30 years or so after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. We believe it was written around 65 A.D., about five years prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Nero, the Roman emperor, had just launched his persecution against Christians the year before. We believe this was written in A.D. 64. And it's estimated that Peter and Paul had also just been executed in the same year that Hebrews is written. So just imagine that you're living in that day. The Roman Empire has outlawed you and started persecution. Two of your great apostles have been executed. And it's very interesting because temple worship is still going on in Jerusalem. You've been expelled from your family. You've lost everything. Maybe you've been in, in prison. Maybe people you know have been killed also. It would be easy as a Jewish believer to just kind of slip right back into your old life. Right into the traditions that you had been raised in. Smooth things over with your family. And just forget this Christianity. The letter to the Hebrews was written to keep this from happening. The writer does three main things. First, in most of the book, he presents the supremacy and glory of Christ. He presents him as the one who is the representation of God. He's the radiance of his glory. And he's the one to whom all of the Jewish practices and temple worship pointed. Sacrifices, the, the high priest and, and all of that. And he's the greater high priest and he provides the better sacrifice, the better promises, the better covenant, better rest, and a better country. As they look back to the practices of their former Judaism, the writer says that Jesus is better than all of that. Those were just shadows that cast the, the shadow of Jesus who is the substance upon all of the Old Testament and all of the history of Judaism. In addition to pointing to Christ, the writer to the Hebrews also gives very strong warnings. There are five of these strong warnings that tell the consequences of going back and rejecting Christ and the gospel and going back to their former Judaism. And the basic summary of this, it's, it's pretty shocking actually, but if you take these five warnings, they say things like that drifting away from Christ will mean punishment. If you have a hard and unbelieving heart, you will not enter his rest. If you fall away from Christ, you put him op to open shame and will be cursed and burned. 
If you go on willfully sinning against the truth, you can only expect judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume his adversaries. He tells us that our God is a consuming fire and it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Somebody who rejects Christ has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded the blood of the covenant as unclean and has insulted the spirit of grace and one who believes this way and does this can expect nothing but the judgment and vengeance of God. Pretty strong warnings, aren't they? In addition to exalting Christ and warning against apostasy, the writer also encourages believers to persevere even in the face of persecution. So God moves this writer in Hebrews 10, 32 through 39 to do two things to help them persevere. First, he says, remember the good times. And second, look forward to better times. Same thing's true, true for us. Persecution may and already has in some forms come. But we can persevere by remembering the good times and looking forward to better times. First of all, let's look at remembering the good times. What do I mean by this? Well, the writer says in verse 32, but remember the former days. What about the former days? What, what, what encouragement, though? You know, these guys are being tempted because of persecution to fall back into their old beliefs and lifestyles and old rituals of worship. What, what good is it to be looking back at all this persecution? Well, there are actually seven very encouraging thoughts about the past that we can have as well that they should have had. First of all, whenever you're discouraged, the first encouraging thing to look back to is the day you were saved. Isn't that encouraging? He says in verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, stop there. Look back to your salvation. Remember. Do you remember the day you were enlightened? I mean, it's amazing. The lights came on, didn't they? At some point, you heard the gospel and it got your attention. You saw with eyes of faith. You saw the, the beauty of Christ. You saw the glory of God, you, you saw the holiness of God, you realized that you didn't measure up, that you were a sinner in need of a savior, and you saw how glorious Christ was in his cross work, his death and his burial and his resurrection, and you, you saw your need of him to have your sins forgiven, to enter into a relationship with God and to have eternal life. That doesn't just happen. It's not... The work of man. It's not persuasion. It's the grace of God. He enlightened you. The Bible often presents the state of a person before conversion as darkness. We're blind to the truth. We cannot see the gospel as truth. You don't see that God exists or that he's holy or you don't see yourself as a sinner deserving of hell and in need of a savior. 
You don't see yourself as in need of forgiveness in a relationship with God. You're blind to that. But conversion is described as coming to the light or being enlightened here. Listen to how the Bible describes it in other places. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says, God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You see, once the darkness has been exposed, once God has shown into your darkness, you, can, you can't help but see very differently. You see truth. I remember the days that my eyes were open. I was, I was saved at the young age of six. I was sitting there in a Baptist church in a pew, and the gospel was preached, and it had been preached many times. I was raised in the church. But I remember that day that it was as if the preacher was just speaking right to me. The word of God gripped me to understand how awesome and holy he was. In my simple understanding, I saw that I was a sinner. I was in need of a savior. And Jesus Christ was preached. He was uplifted. He was proclaimed. I saw what he did for sinners. And I had faith. I believed. And I was saved. I knew I needed to repent from my sins and live for Christ. By God's grace, I've endeavored to do that my entire life. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3, Paul describes, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, there's like a veil, it is veiled to those who are perishing and whose case God, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, God in the face of Christ. Wow. <laughs> That's a powerful passage, isn't it? God shines his light into the hearts, and they believe. Paul said, or God said to Paul in Acts chapter 26, verse 17, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Can you remember the day that you were enlightened? You remember the day you came to Christ, that you entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ and his Father and the Spirit. Sometimes it's good to just take a cross check. You're going through persecution, you're going through trials, you're wondering, is it worth it? You know, what's going on? And, and it's good to just look back, say, you know, my eyes were open. I believe this, and I still believe I'm going to go on with Christ. I'm going to follow him, though it's difficult. Well, the writer goes on, and the next thing you need is to remember that you have endured. It's interesting. You know, he says, uh, 
you endured a great conflict of sufferings. It's very encouraging sometimes to just remember, I'm still standing. <laughs> you know, life has thrown everything it could, uh, uh, and Satan has done his worst, and the world has tried to deceive me and cause me to go along with it. And yet, I'm still believing. I'm still pressing on. I'm, I look back, and I was saved, and now I've endured. That's encouraging. In Guam, our minister of music ended every service with this song. It got a little old, I have to tell you, but it's a great song. He said, he, we sang, We've come this far by faith, leaning on the Lord, trusting in his holy word. He's never failed me yet. I can't turn back. This is the appeal of Hebrews. In chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Be imitators of those who, through faith and endurance, inherit the promises. It's always going to be through faith, trusting, enduring, persevering, being in it for the long haul, walking day by day, progressing. And consider the Moses uh, example that's listed here in chapter 11, verses 24 and 25. It says that Moses chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the temporary pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of heaven, for he was looking to the reward. He chose to endure that ill treatment. And consider Jesus. Jesus, of course, is our greatest example in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's all of the believers that are listed in chapter 11 who persevere by faith, let us rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance. We've got to be in it for the long haul. You can't be surprised. You've got to realize persecution, suffering is going to come at you every single day in many different ways. Verse 2 in that passage says, Looking only at Jesus, the originer, originator and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We run the race of endurance looking at him who endured, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. A third thing to remember is that your suffering is for Christ. Your suffering is for Christ. That's another message of this whole book, really, to point out that suffering is expected, but he's worth it. This is a consistent theme throughout the whole New Testament. In Philippians 1, 29, Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We, we have to renew our minds, don't we? It's easy for us to have false notions of the Christian life. 
It's easy for us to, to be wrong, frankly, about what we're to expect as a Christian. It has been granted. It's a gift to suffer for Christ. Wow. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Suffering for the gospel, that means pre- preaching it. That means telling people about it and being willing to take whatever flack, whatever persecution, whatever circumstances might come your way. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised. What? Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? We shouldn't be surprised that we would encounter fiery ordeals. Which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's some strange thing. Wow, what's this strange thing that's happening to us? Being thrown into prison. Having all of your properties confiscated. Not being hired because you're a Christian or people talking about you and how weird your ethic is. Don't be surprised. In fact, it's not only a gift and it shouldn't be a surprise, but Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You have to have verses like this to make sense of it all. And you have to have your mind geared towards this. This is a, Myra, this is a joy. This is a gift. This is a blessing, Bill. I mean, you're my brothers and sisters in Christ and we need to tell each other this stuff, don't we? You have an unbelieving child who opposes you politically, religiously, societally, It's a blessing. I mean, obviously, you want them to be saved. You want them to come to their senses. You want them to see the light. That's why you preach the gospel. Because you care about their souls. You, you love them, and you want them to see the, the glory of God in the face of Christ. But you don't want to shrink back. Luke six twenty two. Jesus said, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. We've got to remember that our suffering is for Christ and it's to be expected. But even greater than your suffering being for Christ is that Christ suffered for you. There's four verses in uh, this this book that they talk about 
what Christ did in his suffering. He suffered so he could die in your place and bring you to glory. Hebrews 2, 9 through 10 says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons of glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Jesus had to suffer so that he could purchase our redemption and so that he could buy a people for his own possession and we who believe are those people. He is gonna bring many sons, many people to glory. That's why he died, one reason. He also suffered so that he could come to your aid when you're tempted. It, it, there's a special suffering in, in Hebrews 2.18. It says, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Satan didn't want Jesus to go to the cross. We have the temptations of Jesus in Matthew in the Gospels, we see how Satan wanted to stand in the way. He wanted to entice Jesus not to go through the suffering. We have Judas betraying him. We have Peter even standing in the way and uh, saying, uh, it, no, it shall never be. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. There are all kinds of obstacles. Uh, just the, the suffering, the physical suffering itself would be enough to make most people not want to go to the cross. But he was tempted in all these things he suffered so he could come to your aid when you're tempted. When you're tempted, the writer of the Hebrews is saying in this context, when you're tempted to go back to your old religion, when you're tempted to take the path of ease and comfort and least resistance, Remember that Jesus has already suffered. He has already been tempted so that he can aid you in your temptation now. He also suffered so he could put away your sins. Hebrews 9, 26. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. See, we suffer for him because he suffered for us. We suffer for him because he suffered to bring many sons to glory. We suffer for him because he suffered for us so that he could aid us when we're tempted. He suffered for us so he could put away our sin and so we are willing to suffer for him. And he suffered so that he could sanctify you by his blood. Hebrews 13, 12, therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. He's not only purchased your redemption, forgiveness of sins, but he set you apart in, in an initial sanctification to be his special people. And we know that if he's gonna bring many sons to glory, he's gonna provide for your progressive sanctification. Those are things to hope in, aren't they? So looking back that Jesus suffered for us, those are good things. It's very encouraging also to, to think about the fact that you didn't suffer alone. 
if you look back and you're still standing, you're still trusting, you're still enduring, one thing I think you'll see is that you had help. Not just the Spirit of God, of course, but you had people. In chapter 10, verses 32 through 33, we look back, and there's certainly a lot of bad things. That's how it sounds here, but continue with me in verse 32. It says, remember that you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated or you showed sympathy to prisoners. I mean, just think about some of those words. Great conflict, sufferings, reproaches, and tribulations, being made a public spectacle to others, being ill-treated, being a prisoner. And that's quite a list of persecutions that you could have, but I can top that list, or at least the Apostle Paul can top that list. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 29. Quite a list here. Are they servants of Christ? He, he's speaking about the false apostles. He says, I'm speaking as if insane. I'm more so. I'm more so. And far, and far more labors and far more imprisonments. <laughs> could just... Just think about that conversation he might have with one of these guys. You know, how many times were you in prison? <laughs> how many times were you beaten? He says, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent adrift at the sea. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, and dangers from robbers, and dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brethren. So I think he was in danger. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Then he says, apart from such external things, that's all the external suffering he has had, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? And who is led into sin without my intense concern? So that's fascinating as you just think about that. He's described all of this suffering that he's been through, and yet then he's thinking about other people. He's thinking about all the churches and he's thinking about people who are weak, and people who are led into sin. He's intensely concerned about them. That's what we see in this section in the book of Hebrews. The, you have the whole list of trials, and that can be very discouraging when you focus on the trials, but right in the middle of this great conflict and suffering and insults and distress, etc., notice the phrases, becoming sharers with those who are so treated and you showed sympathy to the prisoners. We look back and we see that we were sharers with people who were going through these things. We showed sympathy with them. That's an amazing truth about the body of Christ. We're family. We're in this together. It's so important for us to realize that, that, that in, in as much as we are persecuted 
We need to be together and hang together and, and stick together and help each other. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. All the members suffer with it. Whatever persecution you're going through, this means that you have to intentionally choose to share in the sufferings of others. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.5, says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also is our comfort abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. That first Corinthians, or second Corinthians chapter one is really a fascinating passage because it's like Paul just kind of goes round and round and round. He says, you know, we're suffering so that you'll be comforted. You share in our comfort, you share in our suffering, we're going to share in your suffering. If you go on down, you say, you pray for us, we'll pray for you. It's just a beautiful picture of what the body of Christ ought to be. Hebrews 13.3 says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are in the body. You need the body of Christ to come alongside and to say, you know, we're with you in this suffering. I love to see that in, uh, in, in some of the trials that people are facing even in our church right now. There's people who have, uh, uh, people who have been in accidents or are having diseases or different sicknesses. And, and people coming alongside and saying, you know, we're sharing in your suffering. We're there for you. We're there with you. What can we do? How can we serve you? That's what it should be like. But you need the body of Christ if you're going to persevere. It's interesting. He writes earlier in the same chapter that we're in, in chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near notice that the command here doesn't say go to church now that's certainly understood and implied by this that you know we usually use it in the sense of you know somebody's not been coming for a while and you say well they're forsaking the assembling of themselves together and it is it's great to to come and worship and we, we should be hearing the preaching of the word. We should be listening to the public reading of scripture. We should be uh, partaking of communing, communion and baptizing and singing praises to the Lord and praying and all of these different things are part of uh, our worship. And you shouldn't neglect that. But let me ask you this. Do you participate in the body of Christ, in some venue, in some way, so as to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That's what it says. That's, that's part of the command to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Encouraging one another, it says. So, 
Are you meeting in such a way with believers, and every one of you should be doing this, in such a way, some venue, some possibility, some meeting, in a way that you stimulate other people to love and good deeds and encourage them. You're going to need that to persevere through trials. And other people are going to need that as well. You need something more than just listening to a message. This is why we offer many different other venues besides our Sunday morning worship services. Going at the same time that this worship service is going, you also have Bible fellowship groups. Bible fellowship groups are a smaller group of people where you can have the opportunity to build relationships and have the opportunity to do this sort of thing. If you need to know one that you should go to or would like to know what might fit you, come see me. See one of our elders. We can ask many people in the body of Christ here as well. But there are others. There are uh, community groups that meet in various neighborhoods. Find one that meets near your house. We have a, a young adult ministry called Crossroads that meets a lot of times on Tuesday nights. There's youth ministry. A lot of times people think of youth ministry as uh, frivolous, fun and games. Or, or they, don't, they see uh, leaders just there to manage things. But I can tell you that our youth ministry is designed to come alongside parents and to be there to disciple your children, to challenge them and do exactly what this passage is talking about, to stimulate them to love and good deeds. Are they going to have fun? Yes. But see them as part of the body of Christ and necessary. We, we're trying to provide more and more small group opportunities, a discipleship and small groups plus one-on-one discipleship. I love it just seeing people stay after service and talk. You know, if, if you don't have any way in which you're doing this, just stick around. Stand in the hallway for a little while after service. Somebody will come up and greet you. Probably Bobby. <laughs> but we need to somehow get to know each other. I love it on Wednesday nights, you know, after everybody's gone, I'm waiting for Caleb to finish uh, his stacking chairs or setting up uh, some of the classrooms and going to take him home. And, and there's people just hanging around. There's children running all over the place, adults talking, and, and they go outside. And there's many more children out there running around. And there's different people who are sitting at different tables and on bricks and things like that. And, you know, and I, I don't walk by it. I go, you know, as a pastor, I, I, I know what they're going through. And I know what they're going through as well. And it's so encouraging to see them talking to each other. Because I, I, I believe and I pray that they're encouraging one another. They're strengthening one another. They're helping one another. And that's what we need to do in the body of Christ is to, to be there for each other. We're in this together. Another encouraging, encouraging thing to look back to is to remember the joy you had in suffering. 
it says there that they accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. We see in the New Testament this really counterintuitive set of circumstances. You, you have people who are being persecuted and yet they have joy. I mean, just think about the confiscation of your property. Okay, everybody, you, you've hung around church for so long because Pastor Brian said to do so. You go back to where your house was and there's a, a sign and a guard says, it's not yours anymore. No lawyer will come to your aid because if they're a Christian lawyer, they're not allowed to practice in the civil courts anymore and no non-Christian lawyer will take up your case. You don't own anything. You're, you're homeless. Well, we go back to the previous, remember, and we see that now you have the body of Christ. You have people that will take you in if we're real. But you, have, you can look back and sometimes if, if it's the Spirit of God working in you and this happens to you, somehow you have joy. Like, that's okay. Look at Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 42. It says, um, after calling the apostles in, they, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So what do they do? Well, they went on their way and from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not stop teaching and preaching the good news of Jesus as the Christ. Believers rejoice in the midst of persecution. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says, My confidence in you is great. My boasting in your behalf is great. I'm filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with joy in all our afflictions. You want some joy? Get afflicted. <laughs> I mean, what is there to be joyful about? Except that Jesus is with you, that he has saved you, that he has this reward for you, that he's glorious, that he's, he's better than anything. James chapter 1 says, consider it all joy. You have to have that thought. My brethren and sisters, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, consider it joy. Colossians 1.24, now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am supplementing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in behalf of his body, which is the church. And 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. It's very encouraging, actually, when you look back and you see what bad things happened to you and you say that even in the midst of it, I had joy. I had reason for rejoicing. That's a miracle of God. 
Because it's not normal to act that way, people. <laughs> people will think something is really weird about you, very strange about you, if you rejoice in the middle of trials and suffering. Finally, in this section, remember the motivation you had for all this, the motivation you had for, for joy. What caused them to move from apathy, comfort, security, to risk themselves by associating themselves with those who were mistreated, insulted, distressed, thrown in prison, and knowing that they were risking the same treatment and could possibly lose all their material possessions. What would move somebody to think that way? He says, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. You have a better possession if you lose everything. You know, I, I love that. I, I just love thinking that I'm not attached to anything in this world. Sometimes, uh, you know, throughout our marriage of 30-something years, um, we've thought about buying houses, and we have bought a house one time, and, <clears throat> you know, and there's, it's neither here nor there whether you decide you want to buy a house or not, but, but sometimes there's just that attractiveness of just not having anything in this world. I don't need any more clothes. I don't need, I don't need another car. I don't need a house. I don't need a boat. I don't need anything. I don't need anything. It's great to have that, that open hand policy, you know, where instead of holding on to our material possessions, and holding on even to the people in our lives, and if somebody's going to get it out of your hand, they've got to rip it, they've got to hurt you. But instead, just having an open hand, kind of like Job, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's where we need to be. But remember that you have a greater possession than any possession you could ever imagine. He says, you have a better possession and a lasting one. No, this isn't a thing. This is not talking about things. It's talking about a person and a great salvation. That's the possession. It says it's a better possession. That's what this letter's all about, really, is Christ is better. Thirteen times it uses the word better. It tells us that we have a better sacrifices, a better covenant, a better promises, better hope, better resurrection, and a better country, a heavenly one. Hebrews 2.3 tells us that we possess a great salvation. And if we survey the book of Hebrews, we see that all of this is included in this great salvation. I mean, it is just powerful. Here's what, I put it all together, I kind of summarized it, all the teaching of the book of Hebrews on this great salvation. It says that we have purification of our sins. We have angels that minister to us. He sanctified us. He calls us brothers. He freed us from the penalty and the power of death. He's a propitiation from our sin, for our sins. He serves as our great high priest. 
He comes to the aid of those who are tempted. He can sympathize with our weaknesses and we can draw near to him and receive grace and help in our time of need. He lives to make intercession on our behalf. He enables us to know God. He obtained eternal redemption for us from our trespasses. He cleansed our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He gained us an eternal inheritance. He takes away our sins, forgives them, remembers them no more. He makes us part of an unshakable kingdom. And we know that he will never leave us or forsake us. And he will equip us for every good work until we see him coming. That's a mouthful. That's a great salvation though, isn't it? So Hebrews chapter 10 verse 34 is saying that the key to this powerful joy that releases love and good works and embraces suffering with those who suffer, knowing that you might lose everything and is knowing that you have a better possession and a lasting one, eternal life. And an eternal relationship with Christ. But you know, it's, got, it's something you've got to know. He says knowing. You've got to have confidence. You've got to work on that. To have a deep-seated confidence in the promises of God. Only this, only this conviction will keep you from being apathetic will keep you from having a greed that, that kills love. Only that's going to make you into a person who, who is not going to have to have security and safety and ease and comfort. Our reaction should be, like Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, that's the first way that the writer to the Hebrews prepares us to endure persecution. Remember the good times. Yes, they were filled with persecution, but remember your salvation. Remember the endurance you had. Remember your suffering for Christ who suffered for us. Remember the joy you had. Remember the sharing you had with others. And remember the motivation, the great salvation we have in a relationship to Christ. While we can certainly gain a lot of encouragement from looking back, there's even more in looking toward to the better things. Look forward to better times. In verses 35 through 39, there are four things to look forward to. I have a lot to look forward to. We, he says, look forward to your great reward, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. I mean, 
there's lots of reward for following Jesus. There's a, a lot ahead of us. God is a great rewarder. Hebrews eleven six says, and without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I was talking to a friend one time we were just talking about just motivations for serving Christ and you know, what, he, what he's done for you. We all agreed on various uh, aspects of that. But he said, you know, one thing that really motivates me is the rewards. I thought, wow, I haven't really thought about that. God, over and over, throughout the New Testament, talks about rewards that he will give us. And we need to have confidence. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. We have confidence, believe, trust in the word of God. We need to have that to, to endure, to persevere. Notice the example of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. I love that last, that last part there. It says, seeing him who is unseen. What's crazy about all this we've been talking about is none of us have ever seen God. Not only... Do you have this strange behavior of rejoicing in the midst of persecution and sufferings? But you also believe and live for somebody you've never even seen. And the scriptures tell us that, and you love him. I have trouble loving the people I do see. let alone loving him who I don't see, that's got to be a miracle. That's got to be that enlightening, right? That we see him whom we haven't seen. We see through the eyes of faith. Isn't that encouraging? To know that you, to look within yourself and know that you love him whom you've never seen. And look forward to Christ's promises. Verse 36 for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. We should look forward, enduring, doing the will of God. He says, you have need of endurance. You need staying power. You need stamina in the face of persecution and difficult circumstances. Where does this endurance come from? Well, it actually comes from practice. James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking 
in nothing. God develops endurance in those who trust him. Two more things to look forward to. Verse 37. Look forward to Christ's coming. Hallelujah. It says, for yet in a little while, a very little while, that would be encouraging to those who are going through suffering, right? For yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Jesus tells us, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not think he will. First Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet him in the air. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. 1 John 3, 2 it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We haven't seen him, <laughs> but we're gonna see him. And boy, what a glorious day. We're gonna be like him. And Revelation 21, verse four, all of those who have been through all this suffering and tribulation, it says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain and finally look forward to Christ's pleasure verse 38 but my righteous one will live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul it tells us how we're supposed to live he says the righteous my righteous one will live by faith He's saying, keep on going, keep on living. And as you live, don't shrink back. Keep doing the will of God. Keep trusting. Keep pressing on. This should result in good works. He says, my soul has no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. He has a difference between two different people in these verses 38 and 39. The difference is between those who have faith and those who don't. Those who don't will shrink back in the face of persecution. They'll stop believing. They will not. They'll show they don't have genuine faith. They will not press on. Sadly, all the warnings in the book are reserved for those who shrink back. Ultimately, they will be destroyed in the lake of fire, but, but those who stand firm in their faith and evidence that they are ones who are going to go on and persevere and do the will of God, these are the ones, it says, whose souls are preserved for eternal life. I pray that none of you will be those who shrink back. Let's make sure that we, we look back at the good things and that we look forward to the better things, the things to come. Let's pray.
Father, we don't really know what each day has for us. We, we don't see the kind of persecutions in our world right now in the United States that uh, people do face around the world. But Lord, we know that there is the resistance. There, is, there are the enemies of, the, of Satan, the deceiver, and also the world and its philosophies. And even our own sinful flesh tempts us to shrink back and to fall away and not persevere but but lord we we pray that as a result of this truth that we have looked at today that that we would see you at work in our hearts and our lives in all the ways we've discovered and that we would look forward to seeing you as well in a more tangible personal way we long for you and we pray lord jesus come quickly In his name we pray, amen. I love the benediction that uh, Paul gives in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass.